You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, it's great to see you this morning. Mark chapter 6 is where we're going to be. So uh, if you want to go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to Mark 6, that would uh, definitely serve you well. Mark chapter 6. And just as a quick aside as you're, as you're turning there, uh, this last Friday marked the fourth birthday of Stonegate Church. Yeah, and so... Um, you know, I was just thinking this last week of sitting around the living room with about 20 adults, and then a couple of weeks ago, over 700 here on a Sunday morning. And God is just, God has been so gracious to us in so many different ways. And like even from a much different angle than that, just on the side of watching God do so much in the lives of so many people around our church family, uh, it, it has been staggering to, to just watch the amazing grace of God land on a church family. And so, uh, yeah, so there's a lot to celebrate within that. There's a lot to be really thankful for. God has worked around us in so many ways that most of us are just unaware of um, to even be able to count. Um, so, so we are the recipients of much grace as a church family. Okay, preface to Mark chapter 6. It's going to take me just a second to get there, so go ahead and, and turn there and uh, hang with me for just a second. Before we get to Mark 6, I need you to see something about God, about the Bible, about the world. And, and that something is this. At the center of God and therefore Christianity, because God's at the center of Christianity, right? And so at the center of God and therefore Christianity is a heart of expanding love. So that one more time. At the center of God and therefore Christianity is a heart of expanding love. Now to explain that, this is going to get crazy for a second. So, so to talk about God and, and kind of first things first about God, it gets mind-bending in a hurry when, when you look at the Bible. The Bible is going to describe God as eternally existing in three persons. The, the Bible is going to describe God as triune. So, so here's what describing God as triune means. That, that God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So three persons make up God. These three persons are all fully God. So, so three persons over here, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In, in the middle, we've got this big idea that each of those three persons are fully God. And then we've got this third truth that, that makes God triune, that God is still one God. Now, you just put all that together and good luck with that, right? That, that we've got a God that is three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That, that these th three persons are all fully God, and yet there is one God. Now, we talked about this a lot in Mark chapter 1. We did a whole sermon on God as triune. But I want to take a second just to reorient us around how the Bible describes this God that is triune, how the Bible describes that God interacting with itself, how the Father reacts to the Son, the Son to the Father, the Father and Son to the Spirit, how this whole interaction works among God. And, and let me quote Fred Sanders. He wrote a book called The Deep Things of God, How the Trinity Changes Everything. And in this little paragraph, he does a really good job of summarizing the big idea of, of what the Bible communicates about the inner workings of God most of which we just overhear in the Bible. He says it this way. He says, in himself, talking about God, in himself and without any reference to a created world or the plan of salvation, God is the being who exists as the triune love of the Father for the Son in the unity of the Spirit. And I love this, these next two sentences, how he describes the, the Trinity. He says, the boundless life 
The boundless life that God lives in himself at home, and I love this phrase, within the happy land of the Trinity, above all worlds is perfect. It is complete, inexhaustibly full, and infinitely blessed. Okay, so what he's saying is massively important. Like when you think thoughts about God, it is important that you think big and biblical and like right thoughts about God. And he is thinking rightly here. As the Bible describes God, it describes him as eternally existing. There's never been a moment where he didn't exist. And this eternally existing God has existed um, in a trinity. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit. All fully God, each, and and then one God. Eternally existed like that. And within that triune God, you have this inner workings where there is boundless life. There is, I love this phrase to describe it, there is Trinitarian delight. Within the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Holy Spirit, I, I love how it says it here. It is the happy land of the Trinity. Like God is supremely happy. Like God doesn't wake up and have a bad day. God has always been happy because everything he needs for life and joy exists within the triune God. Everything he needs. When you think about God and you think about the inner workings of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, it is inexhaustibly full. It is boundless life. It is pure delight. It is unequaled happiness that is existing between God. Okay, I love how C.S. Lewis describes it when he's talking about the Trinity. He uses this imagery to describe how God interacts with, with, with itself, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as a dance. This is how he describes the, the activity of God working with one another. So, so he's making this point by calling this a dance in the Trinity, that no one in the Trinity is out for itself. Like there's never going to be a moment where one part of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, looks at the other and says, but I've got to make sure I have mine. There's never that moment within the Trinity. In the inner workings of God, how the Trinity interacts with one another, they are always saying, how can I give you yours? See, it's an outward focused love that you have within the Trinity, not an inward focused love. That they're always about, how can I make you look great? So it's the Father saying, let's glorify the Son. And the Son looking back to the Father and saying, no, we're going to glorify you. And it's the Father looking at the Son saying, no, I'm going to love you. And the Son looking back at the Father says, no, I delight in you. So this is the inner workings of God. It is boundless life. Everything God needs to be perfectly happy is right there within the Godhead. Okay, now that informs when we open up the Bible, how we read the opening line. The opening line. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It informs how we read that sentence. See, here's, here's what, knowing that God is triune, here's, what, here's how that informs this moment of opening up the Bible and reading Genesis 1.1. See, if, if you want to have a picture of God, here's the picture. You have got this heart of expanding love, others-focused love, bubbling up within God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, it's bubbling up, and finally it reaches the top of the lid, and it spills out of God, and you get Genesis 1-1. That's creation. It's the boundless life of God, the, the happy land of the Trinity, that whole thing just spilled out. Oh, and it just overflowed, and you have Genesis 1-1 happening, God creates. So, so that, that helps us know that God didn't create because he needed something, but ultimately so that he could give something. 
At the end of Genesis, it says that God um, created man and woman. And knowing that God is triune informs the way we read that. So God did not create man because he wanted something from man ultimately. He created man so he could give something to man. Now just go back to the the imagery of C.S. Lewis where the Trinity is a dance. So you've got this perfect dance happening between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Infinite joy, boundless life, the happy land of the Trinity doing their dance together for all eternity. And all of a sudden there was this moment in Genesis 1, the end of the chapter, where God says, you know what, We're, we're going to break our grip with one another. And we're going to widen the gap. And you know why we're creating man and woman? It's so that they can come into the dance with us. So that they can come in and experience the boundless life of God. That they can come in and experience what life, like this happy land of the Trinity, they can come in and get some of that. That they can come in and get some of this inexhaustible joy. See, whether you know it or not, you were made for the dance. You might not have language to describe it that way, but the deepest aches of your heart were made for that. See, God didn't create you because he wanted something from you so he could give something to you. See, what you're seeing in Genesis 1 is the overflow of this heart of expanding love. See, what what we're seeing in the Bible when it comes to God is, is there is this expanding love right in the middle of him that bubbles up and wells up and eventually spills over into the lives of other people. It it, it spills up into the lives where he's ascending God. He's a missionary God. He's got this impulse in him that says, I want you to be good. I want you to be infinitely happy. I want you to be infinitely blessed. I want you to experience the boundless life of God right here. See, this is the God of the scriptures. It is a God who right at the center of his heart It is this boundless love that is growing and expanding and spills out into your life and my life. It's this boundless love that is so infinite that he would send his son on a rescue mission. See, that, that boundless, that expanding love of God makes him ascending God. Makes him a God that loves to rescue and redeem. Now here is what this passage is going to confront us with today. In Mark chapter 6. It's going to make us ask the question, do we have the same heart that God has? Like, do we have that same, like, heart of expanding love beating in us? Do do we have that same spring deep in our soul that's bubbling up and spilling out, causing us to go into other people's lives? It's going to confront us with that question. Do do we have that same heart of expanding love that, that God has? Okay, so with that said, let's, let's read Mark 6. Talking about this idea of expansive love. And I'm going to take it in a couple of different categories. And, and here's the first one. I, I want to talk about on, on our level what a heart of expansive love looks like. So, so a heart of expansive love. And I want to just point out this pattern that we see in Mark. So I, I want to start in Mark chapter 1. I want to just kind of work you up to Mark chapter 6 and let you see the pattern that is established in the gospel of Mark. So in Mark 1.17, this will be on the screen for you, or you can flip back a couple of chapters and see it. Here's what, here's what we see in the Bible in regards to this idea of a heart of expanding love. It says this, Mark 1.17, And Jesus said to them, Follow me. And then look at the next phrase. And I will make you become fishers of men. So follow me is the ripple effect of God's heart of expanding love. It is the the going God. It is the God who sends. It is the God who goes out to rescue. 
It, that, that's what's happening in the follow me statement. That is the heart of expanding love seen and experienced by the disciples. And then that heart of expanding love that they just experienced and was expressed to them by God then instantly creates a scenario where God says, now, now I just transferred that to you. You just experienced that heart of expanding love and now you get to be the one who expresses it and extends it. Did you see the pattern? They experience it and, and then now God is saying, now you extend it. Like, like they experience it and God transfers that same heart of expanding love into them and now they're the ones who extend that to other people. Go to Mark chapter three. We'll see it again here. This is when God calls uh, the rest of the disciples. Mark chapter 3, verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to, to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. The call to him. That's the same ripple effect that we just saw. But when he says, come and follow me, it's the same thing. God is saying, I'm calling you. Now that call is that call to come into the dance. That, that call is the call to come into the boundless life of the Trinity. This is the heart of expanding love that is right at the center of God being experienced by these disciples. It, what we're seeing here in this, this call to come and follow me is, is Jesus saying, hey, we're going to open up the Trinity to you and we want you to come in and get some of this. This is what's happening here. That, that they've got, they're experiencing, they've got the ripple effects here coming into their life of this heart of expanding love. And then look at what that, that turns into, verse 14. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. So they experience that heart of expanding love, God to them. And then they automatically, that heart is transferred to them and they automatically now begin to extend that same heart of, of expanding love to other people. And then we've got our passage. Look at Mark chapter 6, verse 7. The, the opening phrase here. We see the same thing again. And he called the 12, Mark 6 verse 7, and he called the 12 and began to send them out. Do you see the pattern that we've seen three times in six chapters? The, the, the disciples, that they experience this heart of expanding love crash into their life. This welcome from, from God Almighty in the form of Jesus saying, come in and experience the boundless life of the Trinity. You, you've got this heart of expanding love that is sending God, sending Jesus. And now that same heart is transferred into the heart of these disciples. And now Jesus says, let it out. Let it out. Now that same heart's got to come out of you. That same spring has now been transferred into you. And it's just a matter of time before that spring starts to bubble up, get to the top of the lid, and then it spills out to other people. It, it creates in followers of Jesus a sentness. See, th this is what that expanding love does. God has a heart of expanding love. It is transferred into all of his followers so that now we live sent lives on the mission of God, concerned about other people worried about their eternal wel welfare, preaching the gospel, living in such a way that we're demonstrating the gospel. It creates that sort of a life in people. So that, that same heart of God transferred to us causes a sentness in us. He calls us and then he sends us. He saves us and then he sends us. We experience that sort of overwhelming grace and, and then we extend that grace to others. This is what we're seeing here. Now, this is where the problem comes in. 
And this is where, honestly, as a church family, I think we need, like, honest conversation and serious conversation. See, there is, if, if you picture in the life of every believer, that same spring that's in the heart of God, that, that bubbles up and expands into creation, expands into redemption and salvation, that that spring is transferred into every son or daughter of God. But there is a thing that can clog the spring. That there is a thing that can stop up the spring. And that thing's called sin. See, what, what sin does is it takes a life that is designed by God to bend outward toward people, to live sent lives on the mission of God. It, it takes that life that is designed by God to, to be outward focused, and sin turns that focus around to where all we can think about is ourself. Like it turns it around to where all we can think about is, how am I going to survive tomorrow? It, 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 we're consumed with those thoughts. How, how can we get ours? Rather than, how can we give them theirs? R rather than, I wonder about their eternal destiny. All we're thinking about is our temporal happiness. See, what sin does is take people designed by God to be outward focused and curves all of their life back in on themselves. But maybe another way to say that is sin will kill our sentness. Sin kills our sentness. See, we're, we're designed by God to be a sent people. We've experienced grace. Now we're about extending grace. The missionary God has come and rescued us. Now we're used by God for the rescue and redemption of other people. But sin will always kill that sentness. And, and so I want to take just a moment for you to just do a diagnostic kind of some questions on your own life. And, and really, this is the question for you. Have you lost your sentness? Man, it is so easy to live in such a way where mission drift happens, isn't it? For we just wake up and we're doing all of these things, none of them bad things necessarily, but, but there's just this day when we wake up and realize we spent all of our time accomplishing just the decent things in life and not the very best things in life. It's just mission drift. We lose sight of what it is that God designed us to be and do. And, and so I, I want to give you some diagnostic questions. If you've been around here, we've used these repeatedly in the past. And if you have been around here, let me say this um, as, we, as I kind of work through these four questions. That really the issue is not answering yes and no to these questions. Like if your answer is no to these questions as we work through them, it's not just like being aware of, man, I've lost my sentence or not. It's actually repenting if we have lost it. Like if sentence is no longer the aroma of our life, the, like the goal is not just recognizing that. It's like repenting to God for that. Like that's the only way that that spring that God has planted in us gets unclogged. Recognizing it doesn't remove the rock. Repenting of it is what removes the rock, right? And so four questions just to gauge your sentness. To help you get a sense of, is that heart of expanding love, is that welling up in me, flowing out of me to other people or, or not? Here's question number one. Have you ever had the joy of watching God use your life and lips for the salvation of a friend? Maybe a coworker, maybe a neighbor, like a peer to you. Ever had God use your life to demonstrate the gospel, your lips to declare the gospel, like for the salvation of another human being? And can I just say, for those of you in the room who answer yes to that, is there anything better than that? Like seriously? Like watching God you use your life to change the eternal destiny of another person. And that is grace like poured into our life just watching that happen. 
Now, if, if you are, um, I would just say in like the majority of like Christian folk in the room, um, your answer is probably no to that. that. On a peer level, that's likely never happened. I mean, the stats are like really scary in this. It's like something like 95% of Christians that never happens for. I was reading a thing this last week talking about uh, churches in America. One half of the churches in America last year saw no adult conversions. One half. So number one, have you, have you had the joy of watching God use your life and lips to display the gospel? Or your life to display the gospel, your lips to declare the gospel for the salvation of a friend? Here's the second question. In the last month, have you had gospel conversations with those who don't know Jesus? And, and we can be more generous. We can say two months, three months, five months, six months. I'll give you a lot of leeway here, right? So, I mean, it's just a question of, is this happening? And the truth is, I think for a lot of us in the room, the reason we are not seeing God save and rescue people through our life and lips is because we're silent about it. We don't have conversations about the gospel with people who don't know Jesus. I mean, I just want, I mean, at the end of that, I just want you to be honest with yourself here. I mean, we're not trying to pretend that we're better than we are. I think it's just a moment for you to get before God and ask the question, is this, is this in me, around me? Is that spring clogged or is it bubbling out in a sentness? Third question. In the last six months, have you had anyone into your home for dinner that doesn't know Jesus? And so, like, just play this out here. The, the reason that I think a lot of us aren't seeing God use our life and lips for the salvation of other people is, one, because we're not having conversations with people who don't know Jesus. And, and secondly, behind that, it's because we don't actually know people who don't know Jesus. I can, when we're talking about no, we're talking like across the dinner table sort of no. Not like I know their first name from work, but like they are invited into my life. If like we do life together, across the dinner table sort of friendship, that, that kind of a no. I mean, I think it's just a moment to be aware as a Christian that the longer you are a Christian, the more likely it is that every one of your friendships, like your deep friendships who you're sharing your life with, will also be Christians. And, and can we just all just take a moment and, and maybe ask God to give us a moment of clarity here and just to know that that is not okay. That's not that is not okay for everyone, every person, our relational circles to be people who think like us, believe like us. That is not an okay thing. Like, if that is true, here's what that means. That, that spring that is put in us, that, that's expanding love, that, that, that causes this sentness, that that spring has been clogged in us. See, if we have no friends that don't know Jesus, that's what that means. And, and here's the fourth question. So first, have you had the joy of watching God use your life and lips for the salvation of a friend, coworker, neighbor? Secondly, in the last month, have you had any gospel conversations with those who don't know Jesus? Thirdly, in the last six months, have you had anyone into your home that doesn't know Jesus? And number four, are you consistently praying for those who don't know Jesus? So let's just take this all the way down from the top. The reason that we're not seeing God use our life and lips for the salvation of other people is because we're not having conversation with people who don't know Jesus. And we're not having conversation with people who don't know Jesus because we really don't know people who don't know Jesus. And we don't know people who don't know Jesus because we're not pleading with God to give us those people and to save those people, to do something in the lives of those people. Are we seeing the picture here? And listen, let me just say this again. That's not something just to recognize, wow, we've got a problem. That's something to repent of. That, that is sin that has lodged a rock right in the middle of that spring that is not letting the heart of God come out of us. Are we seeing that? 
See, it's that same, that, that expanding love, when we experience it, is meant by God to be extended to other people. That welcoming love, that going love, that sending love. Now, let me just kind of tie the, the last bow on this as we talk about, at the end of the day, I, here's what I don't want you to think right now. I don't want you to think this. Well, I guess this is like something that I probably should do. The Bible kind of says do, so I, I guess I should probably do something like, that's not the primary thing I want you thinking right now. In, in Genesis chapter 1, when it's talking about God creating us, here's what God says. He created us in his own image. So, so here's what that means. That you are designed by God to live in such a way that, that expanding love is bubbling out of you to other people. You are created by God to live sent lives. Okay, now, now look at the other side of that. Here's what that means. When we're not living sent lives, here's what happens. Things in our heart begin to shrivel up and die. See, it's not just like a, well, I guess I should just kind of be doing this because the Bible says, do. no, no, it's you are created in the image of God. God designed you to live this way. And when you don't, things break in us. This is one of the reasons that when I'm sitting across the, from the table with someone that is like down in the dumps, like they, I mean, they have a, I mean, they're depressed. Their outlook on life is just really, really bad. Like it's that sort of a moment for people. It's one of the reasons that my counsel, one of the things I'll always give for homework sounds something like this. Tomorrow, here's your homework. You have to wake up tomorrow and you have to find one person that you can go out and love. See, oh, are you seeing the implication of that? See, when we stop doing that, when, when we're not living in God's design of like sentness, of this expanding love spilling out into other people's lives, when we lose that sentness, things break in us. Things die in us. But when we are not living the way God designed us to go, life just breaks. And I just wonder how many of us are there right now. That honestly, we have come in the room and we're like down in the dumps, almost depressed, and I, I just wonder how much of that is because our lives cannot break out of just our little lives. Our minds cannot, they just can't break out of our little life. That the, the number, when you walked in this morning, the number one thing that is on your mind is how am I going to get this together and that together and this over here and that. And we just lost the fact that God has created us for something bigger than that. That there is a spring in us that is meant to overflow into other people. Amen. God has designed us like that. So this is not just something to recognize, something to repent of. Like it's, it's us getting back in tune with how God created us to live and to operate. So this is, this is this expanding heart of God that God gives us. And I, I want to try to explain and kind of clarify this expanding love. Like what, is this, what does this look like on, on a practical level? And Mark 6 helps us here. Start again in verse 7 with me. Expanding love clarified. Here's how he says it. And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two. Now we could talk a long time about this two by two business. This is one of the reasons that we push mission in the context of home groups. Like do, doing mission together is a better thing. That, that is where everyone wins. Mission is a team sport. So when you're thinking mission in your life, it is important to get yourself around other Christians who you are doing mission with. He sends them out two by two. And then he says this, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits, verse 80, charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, 
no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And they cast out many demons, and and verse 13, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So I want to just make a simple point out of those three or four verses there. That, that when God sends us, one of the things he sends us with is a message to demonstrate. Like with our lives to demonstrate this thing. So let me, let me say it this way. That when you're thinking about sentness, about this love of God that he's put in you, the spring bubbling up, one of the greatest gifts God has given you is your life. Like maybe we can go at it this way. Your life, how you live it, really does matter. Now, isn't it interesting in this passage where, and like not all of these things are transferable to everyone in the room. So this is a specific command that God gave to a specific people on, on a ground level. So 21st century, you and I, he's not looking at you and saying to all of us right now, hey, if you've got two pair of clothes, why don't you give the other one away? Just take one bag. It's not the point of, of this passage. But here's what I think the overarching idea, the big idea here that he's getting at, is he is calling them to live in such a way where they have to live with the people that they're ministering to. Like, like they have to live in such a way where they're in the house with the people that they're preaching to. In other words, he is putting them in a situation where their lives mean something. Like he's putting them in a situation where their lives actually determine something. Like their lives are demonstrating that this message is valid, that this thing is real. And listen, this is what your life is meant to do. Like your life is meant to demonstrate just how true the message that you're preaching with your lips is. See, see, your life, the, the rhythm and routine of your life the way you parent, the way you, you, know, you do your marriage stuff, the way you respond to your spouse, the, the way you respond to a neighbor who does something that harms you and even hurts you. See, the way we do all of those things matters. The way you forgive, it matters. See, the way we harbor bitterness, it matters. The way we deal with money matters. The things that we're looking to in life for hope and happiness, all of that stuff matters. See, God is giving you a life to demonstrate just how true the gospel of Jesus Christ is. That's what he's given you a life for. He's given you the rhythm and routine of your life right now to show just how sufficient Jesus is right now. Maybe you could say it this way. I'll say it in two different ways. Maybe you could think about it this way. We're talking about how important your life is as a gospel demonstration. That your life is a thing that demonstrates this message. Maybe you could say it this way, that your life builds the platform from which you declare the gospel. So see, your life is what you stand on when you speak. Now think about what you're speaking. Here's what you're speaking if you're a Christian and you're talking to someone who you would love to come into the dance with God with you. Here's what you're saying in this moment. You are saying in this moment that God is enough that Jesus is enough that he can sustain your soul if everything else in life crumbles around you. This is how big God is. This is how wonderful and satisfying Jesus is. He is enough for us. Everything we need is found right there in him. And, and you know what our life does? When, when we're saying that, our life either builds the platform that gives that word validity or it makes a mockery of it. See, our life does one of those two things. 
And God has given you your life as a platform to not make a mockery of it, to build the platform from which you get to stand up to a neighbor and say, man, this is just how great Jesus is. And your life gets to tangibly demonstrate that. Maybe another way you could think about this is the most persuasive argument for the new life that Christ offers is a new life. The most persuasive argument for for the new life that that the gospel of Jesus Christ produces is someone actually seeing the new life it produces. So so when you think about personal evangelism and, and you living a sent life, the most important thing for you to have is not you know, your four-page essay on the the reason that God exists or the the five-page essay on why the Bible is true. That is not the most important thing you possess. The most important thing you possess is is a life that is being changed by Jesus. That's the most important thing we have is a life that's actually being redeemed by, continually rescued by and redeemed by God Almighty. I, I love how a guy named Graham Tomlin summarizing um, Blaise Pascal, an old guy, of a couple of, uh, theologian of a couple of centuries ago. I love how he says it. This will be on the screen for you. I just want you to think about this gift that God has given you in your life that you get to demonstrate just how great God is, just how satisfying Jesus is. Listen to what he says. He says, if, if, if you don't make people want to believe the gospel is true, it doesn't matter what sort of arguments you lay before them. Are we, are we tracking there? If you don't make people want to believe the gospel is true, it doesn't matter what sort of arguments you lay before them. For Pascal, presenting someone with a list of proofs for Christianity or evidence for faith is probably a waste of time. If someone doesn't want to believe, no amount of proof or proof text can ever convince them. The crucial factor... In persuading someone to believe then is not to present evidence, but first to awaken a desire for God in them. In other words, when commending Christianity to people, make it attractive. And I love this comment. Make good men wish it were true and then show them that it is. Such arguments as there are for Christianity can convince those who hope it is true, but it will never convince those who don't. Are we seeing that? That at the end of the day, your life is the most attractive thing that you have. It is the thing that melts all of the the kind of the natural resistance and lets people see, wow, I would love for that to be true. See, your life does that. It builds the platform on which you get to proclaim the gospel. The most convincing thing you possess in personal evangelism is a changed life. Like a heart that is actually being redeemed and rescued by Jesus. So we're sent with a a message to demonstrate. That's part one of the clarification. And we're also sent with a message to declare, like with our lips. Look at verse 12. So it's not just demonstrating that gospel. It's also declaring it. Like there's actually got to be a moment where we speak about the truth of Jesus. So look at verse 12. It says this. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. That they went out and proclaimed that the people should should actually do something. That there is a Savior, his name is Jesus, and you should actually put your faith in him. See, it doesn't matter how great your marriage is and how persuasive your marriage is, how attractive your marriage is to a neighbor or a person around you. 
If there is not a moment where someone stands up and in the most winsome way possible talks about sin, salvation, heaven, hell, gospel, Jesus, people have no hope. See, there's got to be that moment where that conversation happens, where something is explained to them. See, it is God God who saves. Let's be clear about that. It is God who saves, but the Bible is going to be really consistent in this. It is us who speak. See, it is God who saves all the time. 100% God who saves, but it is people, his men and women, followers of his. It's those people who do the speaking. And God's natural kind of general way of saving always includes a person like you or me explaining the good news of the gospel to another human being. So it's required of that. Let me just walk you through the logic of how 1 Peter lays this out in the first three chapters. Here's 1 Peter logic in a paragraph. The, the first two chapters of 1 Peter are trying to get this across. You need to live, this is 1 Peter 2 verse 12. You need to live in such a way so that people will see your good deeds and praise God at the day of visitation. So, so then he outlines what those good deeds will be. Things like submitting to authority, even when that authority is unjust. Like actually working hard in your job when your boss isn't looking. Stuff like that. The way you love your spouse, like you loving them in a way that that proves that there is a God in the universe and he's changed me. So so he says, you you need to live in that sort of a way. And and maybe if you want a way of summarizing that sort of way of living, it is living in such a way that demands a gospel explanation. That the weird to live in such a way that when people look at you, they think this, something's wrong with them. What is going on with their life? Like, I need someone to explain how that happens, how they can do that. See, that's what it means to live in such a way that demands a gospel explanation. And then you get to chapter three, and here's what Peter says. Anticipating that the Christians are living in such a way that demand a gospel explanation, you get to to chapter three, verse 14 and 15, and Peter says this. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect. Peter's saying this, you live in such a way that demands a gospel explanation. And then as the spirit prompts and as the the moment is appropriate, here's what you get to do. You actually get to give the gospel explanation. See, this is living a sent life. That we have a message that we get to demonstrate with our life. We get to live in such a way that demands a gospel explanation. And then we actually get these divine moments where we get to, like God gets to use us for the eternal well-being of another person. Where we get to actually give the gospel explanation that's behind our life. See, this is how mission is supposed to be lived. This is, this is what it looks like when that bubbling spring wells up and flows out of our life into the lives of other people. That's what it looks like. We're demonstrating and declaring the gospel. And now here's the sobering news. That this sort of expanding love is also resisted. That when you think about this expanding love, not everyone likes it. And and this is part, this is is one of the burdens that Jesus is getting across to his disciples right now in Mark chapter 6. Do you remember what's just happened to Jesus in in verses 1 through 6? He was just rejected in Nazareth. 
He just got run out of town. He was offensive in Nazareth. And there is kind of a moment of clarity here where Jesus is looking at his disciples and he's saying this. Hey, let's just make sure our expectations are clear. If that happens to me, it's going to happen to you. If that happened to me, it's coming for you. And and so look at what he says here in verse 11. And if, and if, and, and we know, just reading the rest of the Bible, he probably could have supplied a when in there as well. So, and if or when any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. What we're seeing here is, is Jesus being real clear to his disciples is you can expect rejection. Like living on the mission of God is not all roses. Like this heart, this spring bubbling up in you that God has put in you, spilling out into other people's lives, not everybody likes that. Like this is what he's trying to make sure our expectations are clear. That some of you, your neighbors are going to look at you like you have a horn on your head. Like what is wrong with that guy? That, that some people are not going to like this. So I want you to think about um, what kind of plays out in this passage. In verse 7, uh, Jesus sends his disciples out. In verse 30, they come back. And what is squeezed right into the middle of this passage is this narrative on John the Baptist. It's the longest description of what happens to John the Baptist in the Bible. It's longer than any other of the gospel records. So in Mark, in Mark 1.14, we know that John was arrested and then everything goes silent. Like you get to verse 15, you're like, well, what happened to John? I mean, I know he was arrested, but then what? And then now we get the answer in chapter 6. And, and here's how the story goes if you read on um, in chapter 6 here. You have Herod. Herod the Great was the one who killed babies in and around the time of Jesus' birth. He had 10 sons. I'm sorry, 10 wives and a lot of sons. So he had 10 wives, a lot of sons. And this Herod that we see in Mark 6 decided that he wanted to leave his wife and go get his brother's wife. So we've got some problems going on in the family right now, right? So he, he leaves his wife, goes and gets his brother's wife. And John looks at him and says, that's wrong. That, that, is, that is not right. There is something wrong. That, that is what you call sin in the Bible. He looks at him and says that. And then Herod throws him in jail and Herodias, his wife, wants him killed. She does not like the fact that John's speaking truth. And, and here is what, I mean, we just see a perfect illustration of what should be one of the, the like the two marks in every Christian's life. That this, this picture right in the middle of this story is there for a reason. It is put there by Mark to show us what every Christian should be to the surrounding world. And and here's in a simple statement what that is. In one sense, very attractive, and in another sense, very repulsive. So John the Baptist was really repulsive to Herodias. She wanted the brother dead. She she was done with John the Baptist. But I want you to look at, look down at verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 19. So he was very repulsive on one hand. John would say what needed to be said in the moment. He would call a spade a spade. When truth was at stake, John was going to be very straightforward. And that was repulsive. Herod threw him in prison. Herodias eventually beheaded him in prison because of it. But but on the other side, look at how attractive John is. Look at verse 19 and 20. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. And here's why. For Herod feared John, knowing, and I love this phrase, that he was a righteous and holy man. And he kept him safe. And when he heard him, and this is so interesting, when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. 
So in one sense, John is the most repulsive man in the world to Herod. And in another sense, he is one of the most attractive people in the world to Herod. And those two marks should be inside and on the life of every follower of Jesus. If your life is actually like the spring is bubbling up and there is a life of expanding love, it's causing you to live scent. If that is happening in you, then, then, then you're going to be a person who is both on one hand really attractive to the world, on another hand, really repulsive. And here's been my experience. Let me just try to apply this. This is my experience with most people. Is that for most people, we are either very, very attractive or we're very, very repulsive. One or the other. So, so if we are the attractive to the world people, man, we are the people who are living in such a way that is demonstrating Jesus. We are demanding a gospel explanation. We are doing all of that. But you know what? We never actually give the explanation. See, see we're, we're the person that is attractive, but we never get like the steel in our spine to actually call a spade a spade. Like to actually talk heaven, hell, gospel, Jesus. Put your faith in, we never go there. So we never give anyone any opportunity to be offended by us. See, let me just give this warm. I think this is where actually a lot of us sit in the room. It is so easy to cloak the sin of silence in, in kind of the virtue of tolerant love. So, so it is so easy for us to, to, to say, no, we're going to be silent. That, this could be offensive to them. How are they going to take that? Are they going to reject us? Are they going to like run when we go out to check the mail in the neighborhood? I, w- w- you know, let's just live and let live. And can I just tell you that that is not loving. If there really is a thing called heaven and really is a thing called hell and Jesus really existed and he really went to the cross to make a way for us to be reconciled to God, it is not loving to be silent about that. Amen? That's not a loving thing. But it is so easy for a lot of us to cloak that sin of silence and that virtue of tolerant love as if it is. And it's not. I mean, I think if we just call it what it is, here's really our problem. For those of us who are just attractive to the world around us, never repulsive, never offensive, that the truth is, is that we're cowards deep down. And that's just the hard reality, isn't it? That there is something in us that loves the approval of people in those moments more than we like, like loving them for all eternity. Like we want something from them rather than giving something to them. Sin has bent us back in on us. How do I get what I want, their approval, rather than, you know, the gospel bending us toward them? How do I give them what they need in this moment? But here's the other side of that. Some of us are all repulsive. See, I mean, there is a difference between being persecuted for righteousness sake and being persecuted because you're a jerk. There, There is a difference in those things, isn't there? One, the Bible says yes to. We should be selectively offensive, much like our man John the Baptist. The other, the Bible says no to. That is sinful. Like your persecution for being a jerk is not persecution for righteousness sake. And so maybe some of us just need to hear this, that there is a fruit of the Spirit called gentleness. That that maybe we should start asking God to kind of start bringing to our life so that the, the guy, at, at, you know, our neighbor, when we come out to get the mail, isn't running because we're a jerk, but because we actually are like selectively offensive. That we're actually trying to get truth to them. Right? So, so maybe some of us need to pray for that. And lastly, and I'll, I'll finish with this. That this expanding love and living a sent life, it is costly business, isn't it? It is hard. 
It's going to cost every one of us much in the room. Part of what John the Baptist is showing us here is a life on mission will be death for all of us. Hopefully it's not death like that, but there's going to be a million deaths to die if we're going to live on the mission of God, if we're going to live sent lives. So the question becomes, how do we do that? Let me just leave you with this idea that expanding love is what motivates and enables expanding love. So let me just take you back to this idea of the Trinity, the dance. And let me just kind of give the, the, the last picture of that. So C.S. Lewis describes that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they're operating in this dance. And do you remember in Genesis 1, God creates us not to get something from us, but to give to us, to open up the dance to us. And that lasted all of about two chapters in the Bible. But do you remember how in Genesis 2 it describes Adam and Eve, our first parents, and their relationship with God? Remember how God was walking in the cool of the night with them? Cool cool of the afternoon with them? That that Adam and Eve, our first parents, they were in the dance. In Genesis 2, they were in. They were in the boundless life of the Trinity. That they were in the inexpressible joy that happens right there in the midst of God and all that he is. And then in Genesis 3, if you know the Bible, our first parents sin against God by eating the forbidden fruit and they're kicked out of the garden and out of the dance with God. And the rest of the Bible is the story of God's expanding love chasing down rebels like you and me. And and God's expanding love took him to a point where he didn't just create us. That expanding love caused in God this impulsive reaction of I'm going to send Jesus for them, for their rescue. That, that expanding love cost Jesus so much, didn't it? That, that, that expanding love cost him his comfort. It cost him everything. That, that expanding love caused God the Father to put his son on a cross so that you and I would have a way back to the dance. So that you and I would have a way of reconciliation with God. God the Son lost everything so that you and I could gain everything. Amen. And when we become a son or daughter of God, when we get back into the dance, like I hope a lot of us are this morning, here's the truth I think God would want us to have. That that life of boundless love is not in you. That spring has been planted in you. And maybe this would be the simple encouragement for today. And what would it look like for us as a church family to let that out? What would it look like for us to let that out? Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.